Okay, I'll try and sound excited. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode four of The Pulp. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. Damn it. Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode four of The Pulp, brought to you by Layout Gloves, the official glove sponsor of our PUL podcast. My name is Julia Johnson, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Hannah, that's you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I thought you were introducing both of us. <laughs> what do we do now? It's okay. He'll cut it out. You want me to start over, Hannah? Yeah, sorry. I'm like... Okay. It's okay. I'm ready. Okay. Hello to all our listeners out there. Welcome back to episode four of The Pulp, brought to you by the official sponsor of the PL podcast, Layout Gloves. I'm joined here by my co-host, but first I'm going to tell you my name. <laughs> it's Julia Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> Hello everyone, welcome back to episode 4 of the PUL podcast Brought to you by Layout Gloves, the official sponsor of The Pulp I'm Julia Johnson, League Administrator, joined here with my co-host Hannah Leathers, Development Associate of The Pulp And I am Bonesaw, I'm the Commissioner And I am just really enjoyed about 12 takes that Julia you just did to try to get that intro And you nailed it Thank you very much Um <laughs> Today on the podcast, we're going to chat a little bit about just some updates um, on the league and some of our process behind the scenes of moving forward during this pandemic. And then the three of us are going to wrap a little bit about the Central Division and talk through some of the rosters and some just hypothetical predictions of what could have happened in the season. And then we're going to go and do a little Q&A session um, and then we're going to kick it over to two of our friends and fellow board members, Dan and Dre, to talk y'all through the rule set and some of the changes in the 2020 rules that would have happened. That was not what I should have said. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's the truth. They would have happened. Maybe they, they will happen sometime. The rules will be played with again. Before we get started with that piece, I want, you know, not not to bring the conversation to start it down, but, you know, we, we should be, you know, into week two of the regular season right now. And it's, you know, no matter how you cut, it's disappointing that we're not playing games right now in the Premier Ultimate League or any league. Uh, and I wonder if there was like kind of a signature moment or any kind of, you know, special time you have had or to sort of think about that or, you know, what's your experience been or where are you at with that right now? Just kind of the feeling of, of disappointment or whatever. Not sure that this is like the deep answer that you're looking for, but I did have a moment a couple of days ago where I looked at my Google calendar and all of the games are on there. And I was just really, first of all, so confused as to how all of March felt like the longest time period of all time, but also a time warp and how it is already April 10th. Um, but also, you know, just bummed that we would have already had something like eight games by now. Definitely. I've seen this, you know, the schedule, Nicole, the treasurer or the secretary of the league put, you know, all the games on the league calendar. And every day I look at that calendar to do other things. And I just, I, I almost go in there to delete them, but I can't do it. You know, even though some of the games already haven't happened, but I'm just like, oh, well, yeah, maybe I shouldn't, you know, I always come up with a reason not to. Yeah. I've had similar things. Actually, if we're talking GCALs, I have... <laughs> my PUL calendar muted or like toggled off. So all the games went away for me because it was sad. And I've done that for a couple other Frisbee related calendars as well. So, yeah. Uh, 
it got me thinking to ask because I did have a, 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 an actual moment earlier in the week. I went for a bike ride. The, the field where the torch were supposed to play Minnesota this week, this Saturday, is nearby my house. And I went for a bike ride. I went right past it and realized they were they were installing new lights through the winter there. And um, I just I noticed I was like, oh, there's the new lights. And then I kind of got me thinking, oh my gosh, there's supposed to be a game here this Saturday. And I just pulled over and looked at the field that is in incredible condition because nobody's been running around on it. And you know it was a sunny day. And I was thinking about the Minnesota folks who have been dealing with you know the long winter up there. And I don't know. That was the moment where I was like, dang, it's just it's not happening. They're not coming. You know, they had, they were going to stay at our house and stuff like that. So that was my main moment. And then I, fortunately I had the rest of the bike ride to kind of work through it <laughs> and move on from there. But anyway, I guess that leads us to, uh, where we're at, which is in, in light of the fact that we're not having games right now. Um, wondered if y'all might talk a little bit about how the league is approaching, uh, you know, this extra time and what we're going to do in the absence of games. Yeah, we've, uh, you know, we've had a lot of talks kind of all starting in different places and coming at it from different perspectives about what we should do with the time we have and kind of looking at reframing it as an opportunity to, you know, it's a huge bummer that we can't play right now. And also like on a more positive note, like our mission is about more than on-field play. And so I think as staff and like in working with a lot of organizers in the league, like figuring out how we can maintain like an external presence and like um, kind of be there for the community. And then also internally, how can we kind of turn this time into an opportunity and really plan a lot of different things structurally um, specifically with mission work like hannah has been doing a ton of great work internally and externally on what we can do in the next few months to focus a lot on that part of the mission and kind of break that down and like look at what that means because it's you know it's really easy for us to be really excited about on field play because that's something that you know everyone who's been a supporter or a part of the league has bought into and also like another reason we all came together is for equity. And so, I don't know, Hannah, do you want to talk a little bit about that part, that part of the path we have moving forward? Yeah, for sure. Before I kind of dive into that part, I just wanted to, to mention and give folks a little bit of insight into um, kind of what our process has been over the last couple of weeks. So I think it, it relates to how we're going to move forward on the equity work and something that I think is really um, unique about our organization. Um, we, we first took the first couple of weeks um, at Bonesaw's request, all just like take a breather and <laughs> understand the gravity of the situation and sort of do what we could before we really hit the ground running, um, which I think was just like a really respectful and beautiful thing to do as a league was to like do what we needed to do and move forward, but also take care of ourselves and adjust to this crazy new lifestyle. Um, and then from there, we, we all wrote <laughs> and brainstormed for a really long time about dozens and dozens of ideas on what we could do internally, externally. Um, and from that document, we, as an entire board, discussed a lot of those things and have started a voting process on what all we are going to undertake for the season. So it's been um, sort of a lengthy planning process, but in a really, really democratic and um, beautiful way. Um, but one thing that we do know that we are for sure going to do um, is to uh, 
uh, look at our equity um, clause of our mission statement with a little bit more of a critical eye um, and dive into um, inviting two third-party consultants to help us with um, some strategic planning and some auditing of what we have done so far and what we are um, lacking in the area of equity. Um, so we're really excited about that, um, you know, as well as we have a, a long list of um, other things that we would like to undertake with equity that are being um, voted on by the board as we speak. So we will have some more uh updates for you all on that as we move forward but that is um what's on the docket so far yeah that's great uh, very well said and, and you know one of the other areas that we're also looking at is what's what kind of what's the what kind of content we want to make as far as like still driving some visibility for the players and the teams uh, when there's not games happening and whether there's you know some creative things we can do that's not um given the fact that we've only had one sort of one and a half seasons um and some of these players never even got to have a practice yet this year so, you know, what are some ways that we can still push some visibility um, for the players and the teams in this time? Um, so we've got some creative ideas and some things, you know, some things we're definitely going to do, like the podcast are going to continue and maybe become more regular. Um, but thinking about what else we can do. And then also, like you know, you brought this up, too, about how we've, we've all worked really hard. All the teams have and the community has to really fund this league. And so how do we balance how much of our funds and resources that we've that we've you know, raised, how much do we just want to save it so that next year we're in an even stronger position? And how much do we want to actually spend this year, given that we're not having a season? So that's another thing that we're all kind of kicking around. But Julia, when can, when do you think people, listeners can start to expect to, to see some, some of this work come to fruition? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, so like Hannah mentioned, our board is in the process of voting on some of these ideas that we want to push forward, um, especially like sooner rather than later. And we're kind of looking at this from a 360 view uh, content wise and also just like feasibility, um, you know, because of because of what Bonesaw mentioned about wanting to figure out where money can be best used. Like the three of us as staff have all taken on less hours. Um, and so with those, with those cuts in hours, we're trying to figure out like, how can we maximize our time in a way that's most efficient and like most beneficial for the league and the players and the teams moving forward. And so I think once we get our votes in, uh, which is, I think the deadline is the end of the weekend. And then on our weekly Monday night board call, we'll kind of all come back together and talk through executing some of these things. And so, you know, some of them, I think, we could start to see not this coming week, but next week, like especially some of the stuff like more publication based. Um, this is hard to talk about if we're not saying what some of the options are. I can give some examples. I mean, you know, like, you, you, you know, last year there was the PUL Sports Writers Program that was trying to get some game stories and also some human interest type stories. And we ended up with a lot of game stories, but not a lot of you know, stories about the players or human interest type pieces. And I think that's something that we're definitely going to pursue no matter what. You know, you have some writers who are interested. Um, and, you know, without the games now, maybe we're going to get some more of the in-depth, you know, uh, human interest type pieces on some of these players. So, you know, that's mm-hmm. one one advantage that we'll be able to have. You know, we can do more of that without the, the games. By the way, my, my niece, Lily, she is a sophomore at BU and is a sports writer. And she wants to apply 
by the way, Julia. So look for an application from her. <laughs> awesome. That's I a public side note. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be on the lookout for sure. Have her, have her email me. Yeah, I will do. Um, so yeah, there are, there's a few specific things that, that fans can look forward to. Um, yeah, can I give a quick plug? Of course. Yeah, one thing that um, I do know will be coming down the pike pretty quick. Is it pipe or pike? Hmm. Pike. I think it's pipe. <laughs> I, I would say pipe. <laughs> well, regardless, you know the saying. Um, one thing that's happening soon um, is we are going to uh, publish our requests or proposals for the equity audit. So if you yourself or you know other folks who are uh, equity consultants who are looking for work, um, please um, look out for that RFP and or feel free to email me now so that you know you are on the list of contact. Um, my email is development at gmail.com, but you can look out for that request for proposals probably in the next week or so. Oh, request for proposals. You all see, keep saying RFP at all these meetings and I'm too embarrassed to ask. What it you means. never Googled it? No, I wasn't. I guess you can I wasn't, find them in uh, Pikes. <laughs> I guess I wasn't embarrassed enough to Google it, but I was embarrassed. I checked it. It's coming down the pike. All right. From, from the from the studio, it's coming down the pike for everybody. Wait, you can put that to I rest. Thought a, I thought a pike was like a, not like a sword, but like a thing that was in the ground. Hmm. Isn't that a... Hmm. That's a, sp- a spike? Is that a spike? <laughs> or a, 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 a pyre? Is that a pyre? P-Y-R-E? I don't know. Okay, we're Get in the weeds. Getting back to it. Uh, that's a good plug from Hannah. So uh, equity consultants out there, make sure to email Hannah. Um, and while we're on that kind of topic, um, not really on the topic, but other sort of public announcement type things, would be good to, before we get to our old discussion about the kind of what might have been the what ifs about the central division, um, we haven't get, we're gonna we're gonna put our question and answer section right here. I'm just out of order today, but we're doing it. Uh, we haven't gotten some questions about you know what's the status of the sponsor player program. Um, you know, are we gonna are the jerseys still gonna be coming? And the answer is uh, VC, as you know, is a can, Canadian company, and the Canadian government has put a mandated you know shutdown on all bi- non-essential businesses until now. It's April 20th, so uh, all the jerseys have been in production, but they won't be finished production until that that stay is lifted so um as soon as it's back to back to business they'll be cranking those out and sending them out and teams if you are sending out their thank you letters or sometimes thank you videos and and if they haven't arrived they'll be getting there so you will be getting your your, uh, actually i'm wearing my torch one from the first year right now so you'll be getting your player uh sponsor jerseys very very soon uh, okay, so we thought it might be fun to just to just dish about uh, you know what we think the Central Division might have looked like had we got some games going. Um, some of these teams didn't even get a practice, so there's very little content out there to go with except for just what we've heard from the teams, what we've heard from some of the owners, maybe what these players have done in the past. So I thought we might start putting y'all on the spot. We have six teams in the Central Division. Where did you think they would all finish from top to bottom? And we can start with there and then maybe do a little roster talk and see why we thought they would rank in that way. So, uh, JJ, putting you on the spot first, where did you have the six teams ranked? Now, two of um, the top two make the playoffs. So, the playoff teams and then the bottom four. Okay. I thought that the playoff teams were going to be the Monarchs and Revolution. Mm. And then I think, so playoff teams and then from the top down, <laughs> I thought it would be. Uh, strike, torch, soul, and then indie. 
Okay. Yeah, those are my takes. Welcome to Julia's Takes. Julia's Takes. That sounds like Julia Stakes. Okay. <laughs> it's a pretty pretty solid ranking. Not the same one I had, JJ, I have to say. I mean, I agree with you that I had Revolution as number one uh, and the playoff team. Second playoff team, and I have heavy bias. I'm not about to pretend I don't have bias, but I think it's the torch. I think would have finished second. Um, and I can explain why if we get there. So I had Torch as the other playoff team. After that, it's so tough. But I also I had Milwaukee, and then Minnesota, then Atlanta, then Indy. That's the sixth place team. So as my starter six there, that's who I had. And then let's see what Hannah has. Who'd you have? What was your rankings? Um, I have to agree with Julia. I have my top two from the Central Division were going to be Revo, Revolution, and uh, the Monarchs. Um, and then from there, if we're going full out rankings, which is cutthroat, but I'm into it, uh, <laughs> is Revolution, Monarchs on top, then Strike, then Torch, Atlanta, and then Indy. Hmm. That is cutthroat. So, you- Anna, did we have the same rankings? Uh, to be honest with you, I was thinking I about mine so much when we spoke that I'm not sure, but that sounds right to me. It sounds right to me as well. We can rewind the tape. Hey, can you rewind the tape in there? Give us yeah. Julie's again. Yeah. The Monarchs and Revolution, and then Strike, Torch, Soul, and then Indy. Well, you both have Milwaukee at number two. I mean, I think we all agree Revolution number one, and we can dive into a little bit of their roster too. But let's get to Milwaukee first. You both had them number two. What what puts them at number two for y'all? Oh, great question. I think that I am just so intrigued by this Monarchs roster because there are so many just really solid players that we haven't seen ever play together. Um, but in my mind, they would all play beautifully together and be a really competitive team. I'm specifically thinking about, you know, obviously the GOAT, Georgia Bosher, holy shit, you know, wow, just wow. Um, And then, you know, with supporting role players like Kayla Strick or Sarah Davis, JJ Jarek, like I just think that that roster is really uh, has a a lot of depth. um, And I think that all of those players would have played really well together. You know, I, I similar to thought about that. I mean, this, you look at the rosters, so many from Chicago and so many from, uh, you know, Milwaukee, but also Madison. And like you said, the nemesis heist. And I, I asked uh, Dan, one of the, you know, coaches of the team, he said, uh, I'll, I'll give him a quote here. Why don't I get the quote? He said, uh, you know, we're really excited to see the chemistry between heist and nemesis. There's a healthy rivalry in the club division between those teams. It was awesome to see players introduce themselves to each other at the first team events with things like, oh, hi, blank name. Yeah, I remember when you skied me at Nationals last year. Nice to meet you. <laughs> so I thought that's a really cool dynamic that they have. In I mean, other teams have, like, you know, the Torch have some Molly Brown players playing with the showdown, but this was like a, a lot from both teams. And, uh, you know, I agree that that's going to be a pretty – the chemistry, I think, would, would happen quickly, be my guess. Um, <clears throat> wow, sorry, I need some water. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was thinking all those things. I was also thinking, like, there's some great Twitter personalities on this roster that I think could, could take them far on the field, too. You're drawing a connection between Twitter personality, off-field, and on-field performance? I, that's a great yeah. – yeah, that's where I'm at with this. It was a huge factor for me. <laughs> How about some shout-outs? Who are the big Twitter personalities you're mentioning here? Um, 
Well, I think a lot of people know, but if you don't know, Anna Thorne's been super active on Twitter, making these like rad drinks. And I have not been free at the time that she's been doing these videos yet, but my roommates have been watching them and they've been making me drinks, which have been rad and very delicious. Um, <laughs> her teammate, Sarah Davis, uh, CEO also has been, it has been and is super active on Twitter. Um, she went to UW. So I think I have a lot of people in common cause she pops up on my feed a ton. <laughs> um, you know, those were mainly the two I was thinking of, but there's probably more. Make sure you follow them on Twitter. So you have, you have strike, both have strike at third. I had a tough time getting a, a hold on strike. Um, why did y'all put them at third? I mean, I know they have some of the top players from the, the mixed division team from the club division there. Um, but I don't know much about the the other, you know, is it Pop, the women's team in, in Minnesota? What made y'all put them at three? I think this might have been, for me at least, a uh, small dose of bias. I <laughs> have uh, Sarah Mextroth is, like, one of the most amazing players. And I am supported by Erica Bacon. Like, those two people, I, yeah, they're just two of the top folks in the mixed division. And I had just a really good feeling about what they could do. Uh, in this division, um, along with, you know, supporting players like Chip Chang, um, Anna Hogstrom. I think that they just have a lot of athleticism. And, um, yeah, I, I think I, you know, one of the great things about this league is that we get to see players and teams play against each other in really um, unique combinations that you don't get to see in the club season. And this is one that uh, – this is a team that might – play together more than other teams, I would say, but, um, you know, very heavily has, um, mixed players. And I think that, uh, in my mind, their athleticism and, uh, probably some of their chemistry would take them pretty far. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I was super excited to see Sheer Klain on this roster as well. Um, when I was playing down in Southern California for San Diego, and she had moved there for a couple of years and decided to give uh, grass or turf play a rest and was kind of going heavy into beach. But um, she's moved back to Minnesota and she's so seeing her on this roster for me, I was like, it was going to be really awesome. And Julia, your, your roommate Chip Chang is on this roster. Uh, how did that come to be? And have you gotten any insight from her about the squad that maybe pushes them up in your ranking? Um. Yeah, Chip it can probably hear me talking through the wall right now. I kind of hope she can't. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, she lived in Minnesota for five years before moving uh, here to Colorado last summer. And so she played Dragon Thrust. She also played Pop. Um, she is pretty well-connected in those circles and has a ton of friends on this team. And, like, she speaks super highly of a lot of these players that Hannah already mentioned, um, like Max and Erica Bacon. And I remember when Anna was, uh, she, Chip was a part of the like founding seven or whatever, but I remember being with her, like on the phone with Anna talking about the team and about tryouts and all those things. And so, yeah, I would say, I guess a bias. Is that a bias? <laughs> it was, yeah. I mean, I looked at, I, yeah, I put them third, I guess, cause of that. Well, a bias inside Intel, you know, it can go either way. Uh, 
I, you know, speaking of bias or just, you know, particular interest, you know, Holly Denicor is a longtime friend. She uh, lived in Austin for a long time as well. And I actually got to play in one great mixed tournament with them called the Minnesota Goodbye. When they moved to Minnesota, they put together a mixed team of a bunch of friends and we played in a tournament. And I got to, to firsthand experience her skills and just calm presence on the field and amazing handler ability. Um, so I was personally really excited to see her, you know, featured on that team, uh, especially because they were supposed to come play here in Austin. But I think she was going to be a, another big addition from their mixed division up there now playing women's again. I know she played showdown for a long time, but um, but I will say moving on from these two teams. Now, the, the torch, for example, we're supposed to play the first two games were home games against both of these squads. And one reason why I think the torch, now, in addition to some torch roster talk, which we can do. Uh, had a little bit of an advantage on these two squads is because they've had now two years of experience playing with kind of the PUL style rules with clock management, you know, quarters and stuff. And that, that, that can lead, and my, from, as a fan, it looks like that can lead to some extra goals, you know, per game, or even when it really, really counts at the end of these quarters, you know, um, some experience playing under that rule set, I think can go a long way that maybe would have helped the torch. And also it's pretty hot in Texas already. And these two teams are coming from the North uh, some pretty cold, te- you know, climates and coming down here and playing their first two games of their, uh, you know, franchise history. I think you're going to have some nerves. You're going to have some weather. Um, and like I said, lack of experience with this. I think those, those three factors outside of just the player's skills, I think would have really maybe given the torch a chance to get wins against both of these teams right up front that maybe later in the season, or if it was an away game might not have happened. So at least that's what I'm telling myself. <laughs> uh, what are some of y'all's thoughts on the, the torch? You had both had torch number four, I think. I know, Hannah, you know some of the, the new Colorado players who were on the torch. I do, yeah. Um, the torch are, I, I was looking at their roster and I was like, you know what, this group of folks has a lot of height and a lot of like big air athleticism, <laughs> um, which could have been really interesting. Uh, Sarah Levin's coming back. Um, Sharon Sow had just a wild season in the air last year. Um, Julia Schmaltz is like known to rule the skies. Um, and Ronnie Edder, who played for Molly Brown, you know, also just a pretty dominant person above the, uh, above the airways. So I was, I was really interested in this roster just because I think that, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what their, uh, game plan was, but they have um, a lot of folks who have that particular skill. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think um, for me, it was kind of a toss up between Torch Strike and Atlanta. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure what, what gave Strike the edge over Torch um, and, you know, how I chose between Atlanta and Torch, but <laughs> I think uh, my bias towards some folks on strike probably altered it. Um, and you know, you love an underdog story. The new team's going to come <laughs> yeah. in, crush everyone. They were crushing everything administratively as a, as a sure board were. and, um, or as board representatives. And, you know, that's where my head was at. But anyway, the torch, uh, I think would have had some really, really fascinating, um, skill sets and, uh, like combinations of what they could do with, with their height and, uh, with their roster. Yeah, I agree. They also added uh, uh, Jamie Erickson. I don't know if you know her, but she's also another very tall player. Um, I asked uh, the Torch coach, you know, who some of the under the radar players who were going to be real big impact players were. Um, and she was one that Shireen 
pointed out, said that she's probably one of the best all-around players on the roster too. So another uh, tall person there. Um, another thing I saw from the torch, just seeing tryouts in the practice too, was um, you know a bunch of the new players who came on uh, this year, like Jamie Estes, who came over from Atlanta, um, Lauren McKenna, who's been playing in the, the mixed division down here, um, Ivy Harrison coming back. Uh, she played on the torch the first year. Um, and then Ronnie, just these, it seems like a lot of these players have, there, there's a collectively a little bit of a different, um, personality. I feel like that all those players bring that a little bit more like casual, more fun, you know, but also an intensity that I think might have turned. Oh, and also Slev, of course, Sarah Levin, I don't feel any of y'all know her personally, but she's just one of the funniest, uh, and you know, one of those people who's like really funny, uh, brings great you know, levity to the situation, but is also an intense competitor, which is my favorite kind of, you know, athlete to play with. Um, so I think collectively all those together may have also, you know, just elevated the torches cohesion as a team, perhaps just from my seeing them practice versus previous years. Yeah. It's interesting. The, some of the stuff you talked about Bonsai with like the weather and the schedule, I didn't even really look at that stuff or think about it in, <laughs> my research quote <laughs> research um but yeah all of that stuff is super true and i'm not changing my ranking i'm still staying strong with it but i definitely see some of the factors you're talking about and like how they could swing either way i think i was i did think a little bit too about like roster kind of like familiarity or turnover and when that mm -hmm. was a benefit or not and uh, a lot of these torch players like have been playing together in like different forms like through college since college um and so like my familiarity with some of these players is from my college days and that's kind of what i think of too um so yeah i think it could go a lot of different directions um i was actually really so excited for the torch for shireen to be coaching oh me um, too she was when I was, I was looking at players and looking at coaches too and like she would be a game changer for sure so you mentioned um, roster turnover, and it's interesting that all of us had these last two teams the same, Atlanta and India's five and six. Both teams have had a lot of roster turnover, as has been mentioned in you know some ultra-world articles and whatnot. Um, one thing I also noticed about those teams is that you know these other teams they have um, you know players from two or three states generally. I mean, a majority of torch from Texas, majority of you know uh, Minnesota from Minnesota, Milwaukee is you know all Chicago or you know Illinois and. And Wisconsin, but Atlanta had eight states, and India had seven states represented, and a lot of turnover. That was sort of what stood out to me as, you know, not this probably as just if we're really getting cutthroat, maybe a bad thing. I mean, maybe a good thing as far as like bringing the region together and all those things. But as far as you know, practicing together and whatnot, um, maybe a challenge for these two teams, um, even though they have a lot of skill. Yeah, Hannah probably knows more about the individual people, but I just kept thinking about. Maddie Fry telling me that Atlanta only had two practice weekends and like to have these players fly in and they'd have like two really hard weekends of practice and then they just go play. And I was like, just, yeah, time wise. And like some of the, some of the off field kind of like attitude and environment that you were talking about Bonsan, like how that filters into on field chemistry. I felt like that just wasn't enough time really. That was like a big factor for me. Yeah. Agreed on all those points. And I think, you know, something that stood out to me about the souls roster last year is just that they had so many veteran players that have been playing for years and years and years and who are, you know, at the top of their division at some point or another um, in the club scene. And uh, I think that 
that is still true with their roster this year. Um, they just don't have as many of those folks. It seems like, um, you know, they still got amazing ringers like Robin Fennig and Aaron Schrader and Mama Camley and um, Meg Harris, you know, lots of really, really veteran players, Leah Sinajini. Um, but it seems like the roster is really supplemented by um, some younger folks and people, like you said, who are from different, different states all around the Southeast. Um, so I think, you know, we could have definitely been pleasantly surprised by their chemistry, but I think that would have been a challenge um, as well as um, just not having the, the sort of star power and uh, veteran status that they had last year that I think made them so successful. Yeah. I think uh, I asked uh, Lee Sinajini for some sort of in- insight in their team and, and uh, in, in asking her also noticed that I think that there are three captains and she's one of the captains. Um, she's living in Arizona and, and Robin lives in Wisconsin, right? Or did she move back to Georgia? And Aaron uh, listed her her current city as somewhere in the universe. So <laughs> none of them are actually in Atlanta, uh, their captains. But um, Lee did point out uh, Claire Brigadier Curtis, I say her last name right, as one of the sort of under-the-radar um, players who she was looking to have a big impact, uh, which is exciting for um, Atlanta. You know, she mentioned how Claire is really – her. she, she said uh, – She's been training and playing a lot and has gotten exponentially better in the past couple of years. Uh, it's very exciting to see, um, which is a downside for Nashville because uh, Claire BC played for Nashville last year too. So bummer for Nashville, but I uh, uh, look forward to seeing her, you know, contribute to Atlanta. Um, although we're all disappointed not to see Maddie Fry or Angela Lynn on the Atlanta roster this year. Um, so how about Indy? One thing we've noticed, and a lot of folks have noticed, they've had a lot of roster turnover. I think they have 11 returning players, um, and they're drawn from, you know, a real multi-state region, um, you know, which big picture for the PUL is one thing that the, the league is trying to do is to really encourage, you know, more opportunities uh, to bring high-level ultimate to some of these smaller markets. I think it's cool that, like, you know, while we all had Indy in the bottom of the division, I think it would have been really cool to see them in this second season. Like, they're they're in a part of the country that is just harder to get, you know, as many people and they don't have as much access to like, just like population wise, it's like some of these big cities like Atlanta or uh, Milwaukee, you know, they have a lot of people to pull from. And so I think we would have seen some really great growth from them in this second season. Um, and it's a bummer that we, we won't get to see that, but, you know, I actually, uh, Sammy Wong on this roster, she's a, She's a college friend of mine. She's a USC grad. And so she's uh, she's in Chicago, but she's commuting to play with them. And it was super great to see her out there last year. And like, you know, I think a lot of these players, like it is, you know, it is important to have an opportunity for them at the top and at the highest level. And like, we'll only see them, you know, rise and, you know, keep getting better i don't think i can say better that just like feels weird <laughs> i don't know i mean hey we're sports talking i mean that you know uh you never know either i mean that so they would they are scheduled to play the torch with the torch coming off playing revolution and i know that you know shireen's plan for the torch was to go all in on revolution really try to win that game so you know who knows how these things play out maybe the torch comes back a little bit beat up from a trip to columbia and has to play on the road again in indianapolis the next week you know maybe indy surprises them at that game. I mean, that's one of the cool things about the way that the pro schedule is, is, you know, um, there are things like that that can, that can, you know, bring the, 
things a little bit level, level things out a little bit. Um, would have loved to see that game. Maybe we'll see it next year. And of course, we can't just bypass Revolution because they're so great. We should obviously talk a little bit about their roster. Uh, I'll get it started with, I was really excited to see Cappy, Laura Ospina, coming back this year. I know she had an ACL injury, but uh, I've only, I got to meet her once when she played the uh, the Torch in 2018, but I've watched a lot of their games and uh, I just love watching her play and I'm really excited to get to see her back on the field. Um, and an addition back on their roster, I think she would have been a big difference maker. Um, what did y'all see on the Revo roster? I mean, what's not to think about this roster, honestly? It's, I mean, Revolution is just, we've been talking about chemistry a lot this this podcast episode, and they just have the most amazing chemistry, I think, of really any team I've ever seen, to be honest. They, um, you know, eat, sleep, and breathe Revolution, and a lot of these players have done so since they were really, really young and together. Um, so, you know, in terms of the players from last year, that that's sort of how I feel about their chemistry and just amazing skill on top of that. But, um, you know, to have pickups like Claire Chastain, Jesse Schaffner, Lisa Pacafley, I mean, I, this to me, to be honest, was one of the biggest bummers about the season not happening is not being able to see all mm-hmm. of these players play together. Um, I think that something that is really, um, that sets revolution apart is their ability to, combine sort of the small ball game um, with having absurdly fast athletic receivers downfield um, and how dynamic of a, a system that creates. Um, and that I think is exactly sort of the skill level or the skills um, that Jesse Schaffner and Lisa Capley and Claire Chastain um, all have as well. So, you know, I think that they just supplemented a, a really freaking incredible roster um that they had last year um with some you know u.s ringers who would have fit in so beautifully to their to their system and um yeah super bummed to not see this roster get to play i mean as far as where where could they be beat what are the vulnerabilities there i mean again here's i think you have to look at maybe a little bit of how the schedule's set up uh for one that you know they have these brutal travel um for their non home game so they have to play, you know, back-to-back nights on one weekend, travel, back-to-back nights another weekend. They've proven that they can do that, though. Although they did look pretty tired by the end of that last year, doing a similar thing. Um, the other thing that maybe could be a vulnerability is there's a lot of footage out there of this pretty much this exact team playing. And it, and if not, there's a lot of footage of those other players you just mentioned playing. And I think you got some really smart coaches in this league now who are doing a lot of film study. So, you know, Revolution are great competitors, but they have a bit of a system, you know, and maybe there could be a chance some of these coaches can, you know, decode that system with all that footage that's out there of their team playing. Um, you know, there's not, there's no footage out there of the Minnesota strike playing, for example. So you can't really, how do you game plan for that? But much easier to game plan for revolution. So maybe that gives a little bit of an edge to some teams who really want to do their film study. I will say having, um, some inside perspective into their, um, their system last year, uh, having dated someone on the team, <laughs> I, I've sort of thought that this might be the case, but I it was confirmed that they their system really is a lot less systematic than we think, or than like it looks because hmm. their chemistry is so beautiful. Um, a lot of their specifically like 
downfield motion and reset motions are a lot less scripted. And so having actually um, tried to game plan against them in the club season as a coach, I can tell you that they are just so dynamic and still so hard to game plan for. Yeah. There's no substitute for chemistry. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think you can, you can't, I mean, especially in this setting where all these other teams are newer, like core from a core perspective of the team and the whole roster. Like, I just don't think you can beat it. And I mean, even all the people that are, I guess, like ringers on maybe the Revo team for the PUL, like have all played with Revo in other ways. Like, I mean, some of these other U.S. players, Emily Berman played with them at POC. Aki plays with them, you know, at some of their other travel tournaments. And like, they're very specific on who they kind of curate and invite to play with them. And so much of it too is from like a, a teammate perspective and a, like a learning perspective. And so like, you know, you have all these great players that are buying in fully to Mauricio's kind of like way of, you know, running the team and like this program that's been built. And so I don't know, I don't think you can beat that in the, in the PUL structure right now. What about their Twitter presence? How's their Twitter game? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's good. They're better it's at good. better at Instagram. Make better sure you follow Instagram. all yeah, of them. On Instagram. I was like, Twitter's not not that great, but Instagram is really good. <laughs> well, that's the uh, Central Division recap. Uh, the what might have been. Um, I think next week we'll be getting an Eastern Division recap. Although word on the street is next week we're going to have a guest host, Eileen Murray. Uh, so which will be even better to get her take on that division since she is the coach, a coach and also an owner out there in the gridlock. Um, so be on the lookout for that coming next week, pending any change of, of uh, schedule. And uh, coming up next for the second half of the podcast here, we're going to have a, a nice segment from Dre Esparza from The Torch. She's a board representative and founder of that team and on the rules subcommittee. And I'm going to butcher his last name, but is it Dan Larilla? Is that how you say his last name? I just call him Dan. We'll say Dan from Milwaukee. He's one of the board members from Milwaukee, also on the rules subcommittee. And that subcommittee worked in the off season um, and the first half of this year to, you know, take what we used last year in the league and make a bunch of tweaks. Um, And so they're going to talk some about, you know, how they came to those changes, what those changes are, maybe a top 10 differences between the PUL and USAU rules. Um, So that's coming up here in just a second. Uh, Any parting words from my co-hosts here? Julia, what's your sweat level? It's, it's been getting better. I've been considering turning on the fan for like the past half hour, but it's okay because we're done, I think. <laughs> well, thanks again for, for joining me and allowing me to join y'all on another episode of The Pulp. But we'll be back next week with another episode of the Premier Ultimate League podcast and every week uh, from here on out. So make sure you tune in every week. Thanks again, y'all. Hey everyone, I'm Drea Sparza with the Austin Torch. I am part of the PUL Rules Committee along with Dan. Hi, Dan Lorla, representing the Milwaukee Monarchs, and I'm the PUL Rules Committee. So um, the PUL Rules Committee was a, um, a subset of the PUL board that brought together a, a lot of uh, representatives from various teams. Um, and what was great about it is the Rules Committee had a great diversity in terms of the uh, playing experiences. So uh, both Dre and I are certified USAU observers. Um, 
I've also, I'm also a coach in the club division, so I've coached with them, observers in games. And of course, many of the players uh, on the PL Rules Committee have had very high-level experience um, playing in these high-level games with observers as well. The reason we wanted to talk today was to highlight some of the new rule changes going into 2020, or what was supposed to be 2020, um, and hopefully into 2021 and, and the future, because this virus can't stop us. Yeah, absolutely. So we have our uh, top five um, rule changes for 2020 for the PUL. And then we're also at the end of that going to go through our top five rule differences between the PUL and USAU. So let's just jump right in now to our top five cha uh, changes for 2020. What's new? Uh, and number five is a rule change to increase the pace of play. Uh, now the clock is going to start on the pull instead of when the pull is caught. So there'll be a little bit more action in all of the games and just a little bit less downtime. Number four is that we experimented in the 2019 season and the 2018 season with having picks be called from within six feet from the other player, but it was inconsistent. The players had a hard time adjusting to it and the observers had a, like across the board. It was just too much uh, extra work to recognize it. Um, our idea at the beginning was to make to, to again, increase the pace of the play so that picks wouldn't be called just egregiously. Um, but we decided to go with the USAU um, 10 feet to call a pick rule. Yeah, and that's a good point, Joy. A lot of the rule changes for this year are um, going to be bringing it in line with the USAU rules, as we'll see for our next couple. Number three rule change is uh, including blue cards. Um, so the misconduct system was very rarely used last year. We're expected to be very rarely used in the future too. Uh, but just in case, it's important to have a misconduct system. Uh, last year, all that was available was yellow cards or red cards. Um, and then there were some situations where we got feedback from our observers that there were some borderline cases, but I think a blue card would have been a good example um, to show a player that the play they made is getting a little bit close to the line, but doesn't quite rise to the level of a yellow card. So uh, this year, observers will be available to use blue cards, yellow cards, or red cards, uh, depending on the specific play that happens. Dan, will you talk about what the penalties are for blue cards and how many you can get or all of that stuff? Because I think a lot of players in USAU and in the PUL are still kind of unsure of how exactly those affect play and player status. Sure, absolutely. Um, so a blue card or a team misconduct foul, uh, as it's called. So if you occasionally hear people saying TMF, that means blue card. Uh, you can get three of those to get a penalty. So the first two are just warnings. Uh, basically, it's the observer saying, hey, we noticed that the play here was uh, a little bit careless or a little bit reckless. Let's, we want to make sure you're aware of it, and it's just a warning. Uh, once a team gets three blue cards in a game, then there's a yardage penalty. Number two on the USAU 2020 rule changes is that an offsides can be declined by either team. If there is a bad pull or if you just want to keep the play going, so that we don't have to have that stoppage in the repool. Um, the players can decide and tell the observer to uh, retract the call and then the play will just resume as normal. Absolutely, and this, uh, I think it's been a common case in both club games and PUL games in the past that there's just an absolutely terrible pull that's very clearly going out of bounds and then the receiving team says, well, we'd rather take it from the brick mark and uh, that wasn't an option previously. So it's uh, good to see USU make that change and we're including that here in the PUL for 2020 as well. And our number one rule change for 2020 is also a change that came from the USAU 2020 rules. Uh, it's a slight change related to travels. So now when a travel is called, um, if there is no throw that happens, play does not stop. So under the old rules, there would be a stoppage and uh, 
everyone would have to freeze for a second or two. And uh, a lot of times these travels are kind of minor. So it's after someone catches the disc and maybe rounds a corner or takes too many steps to slow down. Uh, it doesn't affect the play that much. So now with this new rule change, uh, the defense can call travel, tell the offense where they need to be uh, setting their pivot foot. And then once their pivot foot is set, we can keep going without a check. No, no one has to stop and we can really keep the game moving quicker. So I think what is important for us to notice is that as a rules committee, we actually really enjoyed reading through the new, uh, the new rule set for USAU, which is why we adapted um, so much to them or even more so this year. I think they, as an organization, did an incredible job revising the rules, taking in everything from the 11th edition to make sure that it was like, did this work, this not work? What kind of feedback are we getting about it? And then coming up with something new, which is kind of what we do year to year with our rule sets is it's still so malleable. Yeah, I agree. And I want to give a special shout out to Jana Hamaker, who is the uh, rules committee chair for USAU. And she um, put in a ton of work over a long period of time. And all the work that she put in made our job on the PUL rules committee so much easier because um, a lot of these changes that we put into place were the direct result of her great work. So Dan, let's talk about the top five differences. You know, since we have um, adopted a lot of things from USAU, there are still some things in the PUL that are a little bit different. You want to talk about those? Absolutely. Uh, so number five is the size of the field is different. In USAU rules, the field is 70 yards long by 40 yards wide with a 20-yard end zone. Uh, for the PUL, we're using fields that are slightly longer. They are 80 yards instead of 70 yards. Um, this is both to fit a little bit easier on some traditional football fields that a lot of our teams are playing on, and also to give a little more space on the field for our excellent athletes to show off what they can do on the field. Yeah, let me tell you, those 10 extra yards are sometimes painful. Beginning of the season, it's kind of painful. At the end, it's not so bad. <laughs> so I think having those long, uh, those longer fields actually has helped improve a lot of our pulls. Um, going into or like flip flopping between uh, the divisions or like between USAU and from the PUL, um, it's helped pullers develop a lot of different techniques into pulling. So I know for myself, um, I've like practiced pulling a ton since college, but pulling for the PUL has probably made me the strongest um, to kind of work on like positioning and depth of the pull and trying to get it like, oh my goodness, can I actually throw this 80 yards? Um, but there is no puller quite like Mascara from Revolution. So shout out there who can pull all 80 yards seamlessly. Yeah, if we make the field 120 yards, you still might find a way to put it in the back corner. <laughs> Another difference between the PUL and USAU is that we're playing with timed games. We're playing four 12-minute quarters, just like we have been doing in the past. We've decided that this is a good amount of time so that the length of the game um, can flow. And there's, you know, that we have specific rules for how the each quarter will go. But I think we've all kind of enjoyed how long these games have gone. I mean, they don't feel long. They're enter entertaining throughout since there are those four or those three other breaks. Trey, do you also want to get into what happens at the end of quarters? Yeah, I think we should. All right. So um, for the first three quarters, uh, when the clock hits zero, whichever team has possession gets to finish their possession. Um, so there's no buzzer beaters in the first three quarters. When the clock hits zero, if you have the disc, you keep going until you score or you turn it over. Uh, and then in the fourth quarter and if necessary in overtime, then we can have the traditional buzzer beater where um, as soon as the clock hits zero, um, if the disc is in the air, finish the pass. And if you score, that's it. And if you don't score, then the quarter is over. 
we wanted to keep some excitement um, for the fans, of course, just because this is a, a sport that we're trying to grow. And we understand that there's some, you know, there's some back and forth between how dangerous is uh, the idea of a buzzer beater has been or can be. But I think in the PUL, we haven't had any issues with it yet. Um, I'm a big fan personally, uh, but I know that, you know, everybody's kind of torn in this decision. It's like, it's so beautiful to watch somebody finish out a, a possession just because they're so poised and controlled and everything is good. But then it's so exciting to watch a buzzer beater and they're like, oh, please don't get hurt. Please don't get hurt. And then they don't get hurt. And you're like, oh, let's go. Oh, my God. Um, so even within our subcommittee, we were torn. Yeah, this was the place where there was the most spirited discussion about uh, which direction we should go. And uh, some members of the rules committee felt very strongly in both directions. And uh, where we landed is where uh, I think everyone's pretty happy with. All right, our number three difference with USAU uh, is the amount of discussion that's allowed between players when a call is made. Um, see, there are sometimes in USU games when a player makes a call and their opponent can test and they have a discussion that lasts 30 or 40 seconds. Um, and USU is a little bit more lenient about giving players time to make that discussion. Um, but here in the PUL, we're, we're a little more focused towards um, the fan experience and making sure the game is moving along quickly. So in the PUL, there's a 10 second limit of discussion between the players. Um, so if there's a foul contest, they can have a, a quick discussion. Uh, and then after those 10 seconds, the players can choose to either have an observer rule or if they would like, they can choose to play it as contest and not ask the observer to rule. But either way, after those 10 seconds, um, the discussion is finished and it's time to come to a resolution. The number two difference that we have is that uh, up and down calls are actually active observer calls. That way there's no confusion. There is an immediate decision. There's no, um, there's no, well, it was in my hands. It touched the blade of grass. Like all those discussions that we've had on the field, whether it was up or down, uh, we're just going to leave it to the observer and just kind of go with that. Yeah, just to add on that a little bit, up and down is more of a factual decision where, yes, it was either up or down, whereas foul calls, there's a bit more subjectivity involved with saying, yeah, there was contact, but did it affect the play? Maybe. Um, there's a bit of judgment and discretion there, but for up and down, it's just, yes, it was up, yes, it was down, and we want the observer to rule on that as soon as possible. I can think of multiple instances playing USAU games where I wish observers had active up and down calls, so I'm glad we're doing this. All right, and our number one rule difference between the USAU and the PUL is uh, the use of timeouts. So this is going to be a three-in-one here. Um, the first difference with timeouts is that coaches can call timeouts from the sideline. Uh, in USAU games, when the play is active, you can only call a timeout if the disc is in your hands. Uh, but with the PUL, the coaches are allowed to call a timeout if they see a situation where they think they need a stoppage. Uh, the second change between USAU and PUL is that the timeouts can allow a full substitution. So you can get all seven new players out there. Um, if your defense forces a turnover and you want to get your O-line out there, you can call a timeout and change all seven players. Um, and then another change, which I don't think is talked about much, but has a huge impact on the game, is that after a timeout, the stall count goes back to one. Um, so if you're in a, in a tough spot where you're at stall seven, eight, nine, and there's not a lot of teammates open, uh, you can call a timeout and reset the stall all the way back to one, and that could really help you avoid a turnover. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the full substitution. And of course, taking advantage of that, uh, coming back to one on the stall count is, is, is on a strategic level is very, very fun to work with. And it's fun to watch coaches adapt to that and work with it. Yeah, at our first few practices for the Monarchs, it was really exciting to see the players uh, start to work through some of the new uh, strategy out there in timeouts. And uh, a lot of our players are used to 
uh, at high stall counts, just having to go ahead and punt it and hope for a throw. Um, because in USAU, if you call a uh, timeout at stall nine, it's still coming in at stall nine. You're not getting much of an advantage. So thinking a bit more strategically about the advantages that could be gained, specifically with the PUO rules, has been really exciting to see. Yeah, well, it's not to say that it's only an advantage for the offense, because just as they can switch out their players, so can the defense. And if you've got a killer D-line, um, then you, you definitely want them out there with fresh legs. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, there are some players who play on offensive lines who aren't as strong in defense, and maybe the defensive line's offense wants to keep them out there. So it's something extra for all the coaches and players to think about, and it's going to uh, provide something interesting for the PUL. So, Dan, I want to talk to you. You are actually part of one of the teams that hasn't gone to play yet in the PUL. Um, I know that this is supposed to be a rules discussion, but I think it's safe to ask you. Uh, what are you looking forward to most once you can get your, uh, the players out in the field again? Man, we're looking forward to most. I think it's just being able to play again. Uh, we had a couple practices, and um, our first game was supposed to be uh, down in Austin against your team uh, next weekend. So we we're really looking forward to uh, you know testing ourselves against a, a team that's been established and uh, some very excellent players out there we're looking to play against. And uh, what's really unique about our team is we're bringing together three ultimate communities. Uh, we have players from Chicago, Madison, and Milwaukee. And just seeing how they all come together with their different styles and different experiences to one Milwaukee Monarchs team is what we're most looking forward to. Yeah, it's awesome. We were definitely, today was supposed to be our first game as well. So we were definitely looking forward to, you know, April, you know, big opening day um, at home. The weather's nice. So, man, what could it have been? But cool thing is that we're still going to get to do this someday. Yeah, now we do have our first game, whenever it is, I can just uh, think the anticipation and excitement is going to be that much higher now. Oh, it's going to be fun. Well, there you have it, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to episode four of the PUL podcast. Um, make sure you're tuning in next week when we have guest host Eileen Murray talking with uh, Maddie Purcell from Portland Rising about the East Division of the PUL. We'll see you later or talk to you later, hear you later, smell you later. <laughs> Don't cut that one. Don't cut that part at all. <laughs> okay.